This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Between jobs in care users' homes, and they're generally employed by a care agency or, or by the local authority. Uh, and then finally, personal assistants who um, are a bit like domiciliary care workers in that they work in people's homes, but they usually only work for one or, or, or two people, often one, uh, and they're directly employed uh, by the care user that they are providing care for, uh, and, and, those are, and that is often funded by um, direct payments. Uh, and in terms of the number of these workers in England, uh, and this is uh, Skills for Care data who, who only cover England, and, and I do use their data a fair bit in this report, so a um, bit of an asterisk about some of the numbers, that they're not UK-wide, um, but just below uh, half a million residential care workers, um, 600,000 or so uh, domiciliary, and about 120,000, sorry, these are uh, counts of jobs, 120,000 uh, personal assistant jobs in England. Uh, which are done by about 100,000 personal assistant uh, workers. Okay, so working in social care, so the good, the bad, uh, and, the, and the ugly. Um, so definitely going to start with the positives, and it was um, really striking, actually, that the care workers we spoke to had uh, a lot of good things to say about their work. And there's a quote which I'll, uh, I think I'll show you in the next slide and I'll come back to, which was, um, that a worker said, you know, these, these jobs could be very good jobs. You know, there are things that we don't like about it, but they absolutely could be very good jobs. And so they were generally keen to underline the positives of, of the work. Um, and here, by way of illustration, I'm showing you the uh, proportion of workers who say that they are satisfied with their job uh, by occupation. And this comes from the uh, Skills and Employment Survey, uh, which is quite nice because it gives you quite a long time series. And you can see that, you know, over that stretch of time, so 30 years, in general, care workers have been similarly happy with their job overall uh, compared to other workers and slightly more happy than low-paid workers. So there definitely are positives uh, to the job. And in terms of, uh, in a more detailed sense, what did people want to talk about? So it was the personal uh, relationship with their clients, I think, which came through most strongly, you know, that, bit, that sort of human connection, that ability to make a difference to the lives of the people that they worked with. Um, but then there were also a set of other um, positives around the responsibility and importance of the work, um, the trust uh, that they uh, receive from the users, the care users. Uh, for some, it was also autonomy and flexibility. Um, that particularly applied to the domiciliary workers. And then job security as well. So one uh, worker said, you'll always have a job in care. And obviously that partly comes from um, high demand for these workers. Um, um, but you can also you, you can also you can see that in the data. So we, we looked at you know the proportion of workers who face redundancy in a given quarter, and that's very low for care workers, much lower than for other low-paid jobs. So it's a more secure job uh, than, for example, uh, you know jobs in, in retail and hospitality and so on. Um, so I'll be flashing up a lot of these quotes as we go through, because uh, as I said, this this report drew very heavily on the focus groups that we ran in Stockport. So um, I might not read all of them out. Um, uh, but yeah, here are two from a residential care worker and a domiciliary care worker. And I should have said that is how we organised our focus groups. So we did one group with residential workers, one with domiciliary and one with personal assistance to try and tease out some of the differences uh, between how those different groups of workers feel about their, their jobs. Um, but this, this theme of um, being um, enthusiastic about the personal relationships came through in all groups. So yeah, one, one quote here is rewarding. You create good relationships. And I like hearing my clients' life stories. You create lifelong friends. Uh, it's a caring job, and there are similar quotes uh, elsewhere in the report. 
Okay, so uh, on to uh, the bad. And so here it's really, I think, low pay is sort of front and, and center here. And that was definitely one of the, um, uh, one of the, thing, the first things that the workers we spoke to were, were keen to talk about in terms of what, what are the aspects of your job that you'd like to change. Um, so here I'm just showing you uh, median hourly pay for a set of low paid jobs. And I'll be repeating these categories a lot, so you'll hopefully become a bit familiar with them. Um, in red, we've got the frontline uh, social care workers. Uh, in, in, in light red, I'm, I'm showing you those subcategories, so the domiciliary workers and the residential uh, care workers. And in dark red, it, it's all frontline care workers. I'm not able, unfortunately, to show you personal assistance. We just don't have, um, we're just not able to pick them up in, in the data set that we, we use to do this work. Um, so they won't be appearing on some of these charts, unfortunately. Um, but in, but in, in the skills for care data, their pay is actually a bit higher uh, in general than, than domiciliary workers. Um, so yeah, the takeaway from this chart is that is that um, social care workers are relatively low paid. So, you know, if you look at that number, £10.50 for residential care workers, that's from uh, April, and that's £1 above the minimum wage. So it's generally a job where pay is, you know, somewhat, but not much above the minimum wage. The really important asterisk that I have to make, though, is that the domiciliary care workers' pay number does not properly account for travel time. So I'll be coming back to the issue when I talk about minimum wage. Uh, but that number there of £11.07, uh, median pay for domiciliary workers, I think, is an overestimate because it doesn't fully account for how many hours they're, they're working. Um, and yes, all of these numbers, these are all low pay jobs, and uh, just showing you that these are all lower than the overall economy median of £14.50 uh, or so. Interestingly, um, uh, care workers' satisfaction with their pay is falling. So this, again, is, is that long survey data set, and this, this was really quite a striking series. So if you, if you hadn't seen this data and I asked you to say, well, what, do you, what, what, what shape do you think that line will take for social care workers? You know that uh, the minimum wage for the last 20 years has been pushing up their pay. And so you might think, well, maybe they're becoming more satisfied. You know, that has been driving up pay in social care and in other low pay jobs. Uh, but that's not the case. You can see here that social care workers are becoming increasingly uh, dissatisfied with the amount they're paid, despite that boost from the minimum wage. Um, and that's in contrast to the trend that you see for uh, uh, other low-paid jobs. And if you've got good eyesight, you'll be able to read that that here includes uh, things like hairdressing, personal assistance, retail, sort of a, a, whole, a whole set of low-paid jobs, mainly the, ca the categories I showed you on the previous chart, but only showing you a single line to keep things simple. So, so the, the satisfaction is falling, and we think that's likely linked to the fact that they're thinking about their pay relative to the demands of the job which I'll argue in a second have risen in recent years. It's become a more difficult job. Um, but perhaps also they're thinking about their pay relative to pay in, in other jobs. So the Migration Advisory Committee did a really good report where they showed that the, um, the gap between care worker pay and other low pay jobs has been falling. So there used to be a bit of a, a small premium, but there was a premium and that has been shrinking. Um, and also in the long term, uh, care worker pay relative to the median, so you know, typical pay across the economy, um, has also become uh, weaker as well. Although that has turned around a bit in the, in, in the most recent years with the fastest, the fast rising uh, minimum wage. Uh, and then finally, also we know that opportunities for pay progression are limited in the sector. Uh, you can see that by looking at the fairly small difference in in pay among senior care workers uh, compared to care workers. And senior care workers do generally have quite a few more years experience in the sector, but that's not really reflected in a significant extra pay. Uh, and then also, finally to add, I did see one vacancy when I was sort of surveying vacancies in Stockport when I was up doing the first groups, which said, uh, if you have two or more years in the sector, we'll give you 
2% uh, more pay than if you're entry level, which you know, is not a particularly great reward for spending a, a good amount of time in the sector. Okay, so yeah, just a few more quotes again to underline that point there. And, and uh, this is the first uh, rude word, which I think I've managed to sneak into an RF presentation, but it is a quote, so I think I'm allowed it. Uh, I can see my boss shaking his head at the back. Um, um, so I won't read out that one. Um, but yeah, this just to underline the point that relative to the demands of the job, care workers we spoke to didn't feel their pay was high. And they were keen to point out that they were aware that in some other low pay sectors, in particular supermarkets at the moment, pay seems to be um, stronger. Okay, so um, that's number one. Uh, the second thing which they were really uh, keen to emphasize was the, the workload which they're currently facing. And here I'm showing you, again, quite long-term data on the proportion of care workers who say they're uh, often exhausted at the end of the day or who say they work under a high degree of tension. And you can see that there's been a long-term sort of fact about the sector, uh, which is that these are, you know, they're just harder jobs than many other low-paid jobs in, in terms of that uh, exhaustion and, and tiredness that, 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 that they create. And that seems to have been, um, you know, an ever-present feature of work, of, of working in the sector. The, the latest data point here, unfortunately, is only 2017, so this is not telling us about what's been happening uh, in, in the um, coronavirus uh, pandemic. So I would expect this chart to now look quite a bit worse. Uh, I haven't got a vacancies chart here to show you, but vacancies have been rising. They, they rocketed up to 11% uh, among direct care workers uh, in 2021. Uh, and basically, the care workers basically said, workload problems come from staffing problems. So it's, you know, there just aren't enough people covering my shifts. That means I'm doing more. It means I'm you know, finding myself in situations where I should have the help of a colleague and I don't, uh, and I'm having to work longer shifts. Or for domiciliary workers, I'm having to make more visits. So it's fundamentally linked to staffing in the sector. Uh, and we know that that has become uh, more challenging in the, in the last year. So yeah, I think this, the, even, even though these charts already show you that there's quite a big difference, I think those probably will have become, um, those differences will have become bigger in the last year or so. Uh, and then just also to mention the safety point. So again, staffing was linked to concerns about safety. So situations like, you know, I have to lift uh, a client. I, I need someone there to help me do it, but they're not available. So I find myself, you know, doing it myself. Uh, that puts me in a dangerous position. You know, I'm potentially both physically dangerous, but also, you know, I'm not doing what my care home wants me to do in terms of the regulations that they set me. So, um, yeah, comp feeling compromised in, in, in a variety of ways by, by low staff numbers. And again, just a few quotes, um, and these did draw, these did um, in, in the groups reflect on particularly how, how challenging things were during COVID actually. So uh, one worker said in COVID it was terrible, uh, there's supposed to be uh, eight staffed and we've only had three, uh, it's just dangerous. And then workers talking about you know, how they feel at the end of the day, feeling rushed and overworked and feeling like, oh, you know, can I face another day doing that? That was a really difficult day. Okay. so. The interesting thing, though, is that despite all those you know, ne negative aspects of the job, low pay, and in particular at the moment, um, uh, problems of, of workload and staffing, I do think it's a workforce that is relatively more attached to uh, the work than other categories of, of low paid worker. Um, but there are two, but it's not quite as simple as they're attached to their work. So there, there are two points I want to make here. So first of all, these workers say they're not very attached to the uh, their job in the sense of the current employer that they work for. Uh, and that is reflected in high you know, turnover rates, which you'll have heard about. Um, but another way of showing that is, again, from this survey data set, this is the proportion of workers who say they feel very little loyalty to their organization. So this is a number that you'd ideally want to be 
uh, low, uh, but you can see that it's been rising over the long term among the social care workforce and is now uh, higher than other low paid jobs and, and in the wider economy overall. So social care workers aren't particularly attached to their employer, but I think they are relatively attached to the sector um, that they work in. Um, so this is a chart showing you uh, job moves. So the full width of the bar shows you the proportion of workers making a job move in the past quarter. And again, it's all those uh, low paid categories that I showed you previously. But on the left hand of the axis, of, of, of the y-axis, it's people making a job move within their job category. And on the right hand side, it's people making a job move to a different job category. So if the bar is shifted over to the left, you've got lots of people moving around within their job sector. And if the bars are shifted over to the right, you've got people making job moves away from their job category. And I think this is evidence of social care workers being relatively, uh, you know, they do move a lot. As, as we just said, they're not particularly attached to their employer, but they mainly, <coughs> most of their job moves are, are within sector. And that's different from, for example, workers in hospitality, call centers and leisure, where A, they make more job moves, but they're massively shifted over to the right-hand side. So those workers are much more likely to be leaving the sector when they make a job move. Um, why, why are workers more attached? Well, we asked this question directly, and it was mainly for those positive reasons which, which we said at the start. So, you know, they care about their job. They see themselves as carers. They didn't want to go and work in a supermarket. He said, you know, that works not for me. Um, there are also some, so mainly positive reasons. Uh, there were also some negative reasons, that the, so some barriers to moving. Um, we know that it's a... Um, overwhelmingly uh, female workforce and, and a fairly large number have children and some in our focus groups did say you know I won't be able to find another job which will give me the same flexibility the same ability to fit my work around my life but I will say in the focus groups it was the positive attachment reasons which, which came through uh, more strongly okay so good bad and ugly and, uh, and I should say in the report we do try to draw a link between those two so we argue that this attachment probably undermines workers bargaining power and means they're more likely to put up with some of those negative aspects of the job than they would be if they were just doing it for the money and would just be you know picking up and going um, more readily okay the final thing I want to talk about before I um, uh, give up the lectern is a uh, minimum wage underpayment among domiciliary care workers so this is I think the biggest thing that we found in terms of a, a negative in the sector um, so first of all, we need to get our facts straight. So what is the relationship between travel time and the minimum wage? And I didn't know some of these things when I started doing the project. I'm sure you're all experts and, and know this already. But, so, but, but to take these one at a time, travel time is working time. And this is travel time between jobs, not the travel to the first job of the day uh, from the end of the, from the last job of the day to home, but travel time between jobs in your working day. That is travel time. And therefore, minimum wage uh, applies. You need to be paid at least a minimum wage for that time. Uh, domiciliary care workers generally, this is not universally the case, but generally they're not paid for their travel time. So they'll be given a mileage reimbursement of 30 to 40p per mile travelled, but they're generally not paid an hourly rate um, for their travel time at all. Um, that is okay, that's allowed, as long as average pay, once you take account of travel time, so get a full a full counting of how much is someone paid and how many hours do they work, as long as that number, average pay, is above the minimum wage, that's okay. So you cannot be paid a direct hourly rate for your travel time as long as that average number is enough. And the way that usually works is that a care provider says, well, you know, our rate for our contact time is this, there's a bit of a buffer to the minimum wage, we know that the travel time will be eroding that down, but we're confident that, that buffer is, is high enough that we're okay. Um, but I'll argue uh, with a chart a bit later on that that is probably not the case for, for many workers. Um, 
The only other points to have to, to bear in mind is that mileage reimbursements are not pay. They simply don't count as pay for minimum wage purposes. So even if you gave someone a very generous mileage reimbursement, that is just uh, irrelevant for the for, for minimum wage. Uh, and then finally, and unfortunately, we, we just don't have very good sources of data on uh, the travel time question. So that does, so travel time, I don't think, is properly uh, picked up in the ONS's main pay uh, data set, so the annual survey of hours and earnings, the labor force survey, um, a brief chat with Skills for Care suggests that they also, their pay data sets don't, don't cover this particularly well. So I don't think we really actually have a very good picture on exactly how many workers are underpaid, but I have suggestive evidence um, that, that, that quite a number are. Um, but I will be coming back to that when, when we get to that point in the discussion. Um, okay, so just to finish with some conclusions. Um, so first of all, social care work uh, can and should be good work. Uh, that was something that the focus group, um, the, the workers in our focus groups told us. Um, and, and I believe that is the case because some of, or many of the negative aspects of the work that were described, I think, stem from uh, policy choices. They're not inherent to care work. Um, so, we, so we can improve these jobs. Um, in the report, we argue, first of all, for a higher sector wage floor. We think a lot of these problems ultimately come back to pay, both the uh, minimum wage underpayment risk uh, and the current staffing shortages. So uh, we um, argue that uh, a sector wage floor about £2 above the minimum wage would be appropriate, both because that would materially uh, reduce the risk of minimum wage underpayment, because that buff would then be more or less enough, given how much time workers typically spend travelling, um, um, but also that would be enough to you know, make a material difference to workers' pay, and um, I think it would improve uh, the staffing shortage problem. Uh, obviously, that would require more funding. Uh, based on previous calculations, we think that would involve uh, a roughly 8% increase in gross state spending uh, on, the, on the sector, um, and around 4% if you account for the fact that the Treasury would be getting more money back in taxes and spending less on benefits by paying low-paid workers more. Uh, and then finally, as a sort of an addition or a complement to that, we think it's important that domiciliary workers are paid directly for their travel time and hourly rate. Uh, and in terms of enforcement and in terms of workers understanding their rate of pay, I think providers should be asked or required to uh, record that travel time number. It should be much more straightforward, I think, for HMRC to say to a care provider, please show us your records, both in terms of pay, uh, hours worked and travel time, and then you can do a very straightforward calculation to, to check that, that, that these um, workers, that these care agencies, care agencies uh, are minimum wage compliant. And then finally, uh, I haven't discussed this in the slides here, but we can probably come back to it a bit in the discussion. Uh, we spoke to um, personal assistants, and really the problems that they highlighted were ones of uh, insecurity uh, and informality. So although in most cases they do say, or at least they suggest they're sort of t technically employed, um, other work has shown that many, in many cases they aren't given an employment contract uh, and don't really have the entitlements that they should have uh, along with that employment status. So we think more could be done to um, um, turn those jobs into more secure, um, formal uh, employed relationships. Uh, that was it from me. Over to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nye. Um, it's an amazing report. There's, there's so much more in it, so I definitely commend it to the audience. Um, Stephen, so Nye has given us a perspective from the sort of bottom up. What does it look like from the top down? Morning, everyone. And um, yes, I've had a chance to, to have a um, look at the report, and it is a fantastic read, so uh, please do that. Um, it, the report itself um, doesn't, um, doesn't bring out uh, any significant challenges in relation to our understanding. Um, so, um, so 
sorry now, but there's very few new messages within the report. But, but in a way, please take that as, as um, an important validation of what the sector now uh, recognises about itself. Um, what I was surprised, having said that, though, was the, uh, the point you brought out about how satisfaction has been deteriorating within the sector for um, nearly a 30-year uh, period. Um, thinking about today and, and reading the report, um, there are some really salutary uh, and some really stark messages in there about the value uh, of, of social care workers, um, the perception uh, of social care workers, uh, and um, what what really needs to be done. Um, it, it, it's it's difficult in a way because um, uh, social care is probably uh, has, has probably never had uh, the profile as it has currently. Um, you know, most days, most weeks, you can see social care referenced in uh, print media or, or, or other media. Unfortunately, it still tends to be very much linked to two primary areas. Um, at the moment, it's very much around hospital discharge and how we can support the NHS in that, in that respect. Um, often it's in relation to care homes. Uh, and of course, um, whilst you did talk to residential workers in your study, you equally talked to, to uh, domiciliary care and personal assistance. Uh, and, and I think that, that brings us back to the first challenge. Uh, what is social care and what is the role of workers within social care? Um, you know, uh, I've got a family history of, of working in care from my grandmother to, uh, to myself. Uh, my mother was a, a residential care worker uh, and um, when I was growing up and I, I never questioned the value of the work she did and she was very passionate about uh, the impact she had on people's lives. And I heard the same passion coming through from the workers that you interviewed. Uh, but how often do we hear that talked about in the, in the media? How often do we uh, talk about the, the really fantastic impact that uh, social care workers have on the lives of the people they support? Um, I think we need to do lots more of that because lots more of that will add to the argument and that argument is very stark, and, and it is understood by us, as uh, you uh, kindly put, Lindsay, at the, at the top, uh, around pay, uh, and, and the need to ensure that people are paid appropriately and rewarded uh, appropriately uh, for that fantastic work they do. Um, now, the challenges we face, and you know, I, I don't want to sound in a way like a broken record, are, are in a way relatively simple. Uh, we need a, a long-term sustainable investment in the care sector, uh, an investment that allows employers uh, to um, create long-term financial stable plans for their business and within that ensure that they are rewarding and paying their staff appropriately because a successful business comes down to a number of things. Uh, one of those critical things is the workforce within it. Uh, they are the they are the, uh, the front-line representation of how good or not uh, that organisation is. So if you don't have a satisfied workforce, uh, they are not necessarily going to ensure that you have a, a good, strong business. So from a business sense, it's, it's important to do that. Uh, from a, a, an investment in the workforce, uh, it's important. And um, you know, your report talks uh, at the beginning quite rightly around uh, 
social care is not going to go away. In fact, the need for social care is going to increase, uh, but also the need for much more diverse roles within social care is going to increase. So we do need to ensure as well as a, a, a strong financial sector within that an appropriately well-paid uh, workforce, but also um, a, a diversity so that uh, people can find the right bit of social care uh, for them to be involved with. Uh, now, in a way, if there was a, a government ministry here, I suspect they would say, yes, We've talked about that, and in fact, our reform agenda, even though it might be paused in part, has all of those things within it, a half a billion pound investment in workforce. But my challenge back to them would be, but we're not seeing most, much of that as yet having a meaningful impact in, in the workforce. And um, I, I wasn't reassured by what people told you about their uh, commitment to the sector if not to their employer, because I don't think it would take very much to lose that commitment, uh, and um, thus why it is really important for us uh, to keep lobbying, uh, keep showing our, uh, our politicians, whether they be local or national, the value of the social care workforce, keep explaining the importance of investment in that sector, and then you know, for people like me, and I suspect we'll talk about this a little bit later, ensuring that that investment does get represented in the pay packets uh, of the people who are doing the work. Stephen, thank you. Um, the issue about value is coming up so much on Slido, so we'll, we'll definitely definitely come back to that um, in a minute. But Gavin, um, let me turn to you for some observations. I, I guess my, my real question to you is, is what Nye heard and, and sets out in the research resonating with, with your members? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I should start by saying thank you to the Resolution Foundation for carrying out this piece of work. Thank you for, to Nye for your fantastic work on this. And the, this research, I was absolutely fascinated in reading it um, in the way that it chimed with a lot of the messages that we're receiving from our members who work in the care sector. Unison is the, is the largest union in social care and it's a big priority for our union as well. Um, our General Secretary Christina McInnie has made that very clear that our union should be campaigning as hard as possible for the kind of improvements, many of which Stephen's just mentioned, uh, that we need in the sector to address the problems that are identified in the report. And that the thing that particularly chimed was this vicious circle between low pay staffing shortages and, and essentially burnout stress amongst care workers. When we surveyed our members um, in social care on, on the issue of staffing shortages, we were told that um, the, the top issue for those that were thinking of leaving the sector was burnout and stress. By the way, 67% of our members um, replying to that survey said that they were actively thinking of leaving the sector, and that was the top reason why. Of course, pay feeds into that, but it's really interesting to see that in this report, that vicious circle was again identified as a top issue. What I feel has happened in social care is we've got ourselves into a tragic set of circumstances, and that comes out very strongly in the report, in that you have a, a group of workers that desperately want to do a really good job and yet often are simply unable to because of the circumstances in which they find themselves. Um, I just want to read a quote from a Unison member, if I may, a, a care worker member, um, just to kind of bring that voice once again to, to this event. Um, one of our care workers told us um, in the survey that we did on staffing shortages, she said, 
people aren't getting the regular baths or showers, just a quick wash. There's no time to do the job properly. Some are not getting dressed until 2 p.m. and assisted feeding is rushed. Staff are exhausted, angry and upset because they don't have the time to do everything that they should. And that, the, the tragedy again is there in that final part um, of that quote. They want to do that job, but they're simply not able to because of, of staffing shortages. So we, in this country, I feel, have normalised um, you know, care workers not being paid properly for travel time, care workers being paid less than the national minimum wage when they're doing sleep-in shifts. We've normalised poverty wages as, as core wages in the sector. Um, and... Uh, you know, we simply should not be in that situation when we're talking about uh, a vital public service. And I'm going to just come back and I'll, I'll, I'll finish. Um, I know people won't want to hear me talk um, for too long, but just I, I want to come back to kind of the political context for all of this, because I think that's absolutely crucial. I think the recommendations made in this report, particularly about a national boost for pay uh, in social care, are absolutely spot on. But it's important to, for us to all note the political circumstances in which that is landing. Um, only last week, the, the care minister, Helen Whateley, was, was asked actually almost exactly around this issue that we are we're referring to with a national boost for pay. And when she was asked about this in the House of Commons, this is last week, she, her answer was, the department has no plans to outline minimum levels of pay specifically for care workers. Most care workers are employed by private sector providers who set their pay and terms and conditions independent of government. Now, the very best interpretation of that analysis of the situation is that it's highly cynical. We all know that ultimately the government has the levers to pull. As Stephen said, there are choices there, policy choices for government to address some of these issues. Um, underfunding is clearly a huge issue. It's been acute for a very long period of time and that's still not been addressed. Despite the, the recent um, pots of money that have been announced, that will not be enough to address the long-term issues in social care. We all know that that is the case. Estimates are around about um, 10 to 14 billion pounds extra per year to get us just back to 2010 levels uh, of the quality of care that was being provided then. And I think uh, at the heart of this is the status of care work. Um, we were talking before about um, the status of those workers in the health sector. Of course, it's beset by a huge number of problems at the moment, but I, do, I think the, the status of that work, the clear branding of the NHS is a really important element of that, and I think we need to move towards that in the care sector. Um, I also think that um, government needs to start taking responsibility for the care sector. Time and time again during the pandemic, um, we were told you know, we, we simply can't do, do anything about these issues. Or when the government did do something, in the example of the Infection Control Fund, where they attempted to put money into the sector to address the issue of people dropping down to statutory sick pay when they needed to self-isolate, uh, which of course was driving care workers coming into care settings when they had COVID and was leading to people losing their lives, something that was proven through government-funded studies. Uh, when they put that money in, in order to try and address that issue, we were still being told by our members in the social care sector that the majority of them were still either going down to statutory sick pay or even lower. So 
that extra money that was put in, though it did make a difference, did not all reach the front line. I'm absolutely convinced of that and did not have the impact that it should have done. Too often in the social care sector, that's just one example, a lever is pulled and nothing happens. <laughs> or a lever is not pulled at all and people, as Helen Waitley is saying over core pay at the moment, this is independent of government, it's nothing to do with us. And that is simply not true. Government needs to take responsibility. And I'll finish on a point around um, funding. I've spoken about its inadequacy. I also think this, this um, recent trend from government of short-term funding is damaging to the sector. People in the social care sector, employers, commissioners, care workers, they want to have long-term sustainability. And yet, time after time, we're given these short-term pots of money which don't allow the sector to plan properly and create a sustainable body for care. We would not tolerate that in the NHS, so why are we tolerating it in our social care sector? Um, and, you know, in a, in a week or so's time, Unison's going to be launching a, a formal campaign um, that we're going to be running on uh, for a national care service. Now, that's not necessarily a service that's, you know, run from Westminster. We believe local government is, is, is the best place for, for that to sit. Um, but it, we, we have to have national standards on terms and conditions for care workers. We need to move away from this broken model of localised pay markets, which simply does not work and ends up in a race to the bottom for care workers, as we've seen. And we need to move to a situation where the status of care work is easily identifiable and put on the same level as the NHS. So I'll, I'll leave it there and I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Gavin. Stephen, I realise we didn't give you a clap, but I suspect <laughs> clapping is a topic we might might return to in a minute. So um, the, the floor is kind of there for the audience. Um, well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to try and, and group the questions into, into clusters. And there's, there's a lot of questions coming in um, around about the issue of pay and also about tackling staff shortages. So let, let's start with a couple there. So we've got one that's come in from Jenny who says, would increasing pay in the social care sector solve all its problems? And then the kind of other side of the coin, there's a really nice question here which is asking, is there anything we can do to improve the quality of social care jobs that does not depend on more money? Um, which definitely seems like a challenging one. So I might, I might come to you first, Stephen, to, for your reflections on what, what can we do in the absence of a, a more generous pay settlement or is a generous pay settlement the kind of be-all and end-all here? So um, let's be clear, pay, pay isn't going to be the be-all and end-all, but equally so, you cannot overlook pay. So you have to do both. Um, one of the things that people constantly tell me after they've talked to me about pay is feeling valued and feeling valued comes from a variety of ways it, it comes from being able to support a career and a career is about being financially sustainable but also having a clear pathway for those people who want to develop uh, and increase their skill set perhaps move through an organization uh, promotion wise so so it is really important for employers to be able to set a very clear development uh, trajectory for, for for their workforce but also uh, and it comes back to um, one of my earlier points it is also about making sure the value that people's roles and their contributions in their roles has is reminded um, to them first um, 
ideally on a day-to-day -day basis, in a meaningful way. So it's not just about saying thank you. It starts with saying thank you, but then it goes on and talks about the impact that uh, you've had in your role on the lives of people. But then it goes beyond the, the, the immediate environment into the, into the local uh, community, into the region, and nationally. So, so we talk about the positive impact uh, that people have. Um, some people in the room may know, but not everyone. I, I started my career as a nurse, so I spent the first half of my career in the NHS, um, and the second half I've been in, in, in social care. Um, I still find it easier to explain to people what it was I did as a nurse than what it is I, I've done through my various social care roles that I've had. Uh, because unfortunately, the, the public have this recognized perception of what a nurse is, uh, sometimes it's defined by a, a uniform, sometimes it's defined by a role and experience. When you start to talk about the, role, uh, that I have, uh, the roles I've had in social care, it, it, it's much harder. We've got to get much better at that and we've got to get much better at telling the stories of the impact that personal assistants have, that domiciliary care workers have, that residential care workers have on, on the lives of people. Because as, as we know, most of us in this room at some point in our lives if not directly, indirectly through our families, will need and be looking for that support. So we've got to do both the pay and the and the softer uh, components. But but you know, when did you last say thank you to a social care worker for the role they have? When did you last say you know um, that's amazing? Thank you, Gavin. Do you agree? To a large extent, yes. I think uh, you know, pay is a is a necessary but not sufficient. Uh, element of this, but it's incredibly important. I mean, you know, it is very frustrating when we hear the Prime Minister being asked, you know, would he do a care worker job for £18,000 a year? And his answer is essentially, it's not all about pay. Well, to some extent that's true, but it's mainly about pay. That's, you know, you don't get through the door on the other issues unless you address the poverty wages that people are being paid for an incredibly difficult job that requires a high level of skill. So until that's addressed, you know, you're not going to be able to move to these other issues. But the, the other issues are important. That's not to say that they're, they're not. I think career progression is, is, is a key part of that. I think um, having a, a clear set of qualifications that is well understood within the sector uh, so that people can kind of move through the levels and, 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 and take on different roles in social care. I think that's really important as well. I come back to this point about status. I mean, there are there are good employers in the social care sector. Don't get me wrong. You know, there there are, there are employers who try to do the right things. Lots of employers who engage positively with trade unions and engage with Unison. But there are a huge number of very poor employers uh, who uh, you know we wouldn't have the situation with travel time if if that were not the case. Um, and care workers need to stop being treated like numbers on a spreadsheet and being treated like human beings who want to do a great job for the people that they are caring for. And um, I, I think a key part of that is them being seen as part of a national institution and a national care service. One of the things that Matt Hancock did during the pandemic was, was come up with that badge. Do you all remember him appearing with that badge, care, with the green background, you know, still around. Um, lots of people sneered at that, um, you know, all the other things he did. I actually thought that was a good move it's a good move. That superficial act of having an identifiable service is what we need in care service, but it must mean something and it must be backed up by government action. So I'll stop there.
Thanks, Kevin. I mean, here's a, here's a suggestion from Laura. How do we get professional recognition and prestige for the care workforce? Is a Royal College of Social Care the answer? Stephen, do you have thoughts on that? Do we need a professional body? I, I think we need a, a clear, recognised mechanism for apologies, recognising the role of, of care workers. Uh, whether it's that proposal or another, I, 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 I'm, I'm not clear on. Uh, but we do need, we, we've got it for um, social workers, nurses, OTs, etc. Et Why not have that for uh, for care workers. Um, it, it's interesting, uh, let's come back to my earlier point, um, people who uh, provide care and support is such a, uh, such a diverse uh, range of, of individuals. Um, but but if, if, it, if, if it contributes positively to the value that the public place on individuals, and if it has some teeth around minimum standards associated with um, recruitment, training and development, retention, yeah. then absolutely. Yeah. Let's think um, a bit more um, broadly about the question of um, recruitment and retention and, and staff shortages. And I think maybe we'll, we'll use our first poll to kind of provoke this a bit. So um, if, 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 we, if we're thinking about kind of bigger issues, um, you know, that we've talked about improving pay and conditions and funding for the sector to recruit and retain. But obviously there are, there are other options. And there's a question on Slido talking to the second point here to expand the visa regime to allow more migrants to work in social care. Um, is the option that we just rely, rely more on unpaid care? And we, we met some unpaid carers in our, in our focus groups, didn't we, Nye? And finally, the idea that um, maybe we, we have to ration care. So while, while people are, are voting on, on that one, um, thoughts from, from you, Gavin. Which one would you plump for? Uh, well, look, you, you, you need to address, you will be unsurprised to hear me say, uh, the, the core issue of, of, of pay. Um, look, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that the Migration Advisory Committee, uh, one of their main recommendations, which the government has failed to um, respond to, is that we should introduce a sectoral uh, minimum wage for the care sector, precisely as you, as you are recommending today. Uh, th th there, isn't, there is no kind of golden solution, you know, no magic wand that, that someone can wave, which doesn't involve a national solution to pay terms and conditions in social care. I'll d just to give you a comparison of, of the kind of things that happens in the care sector at the moment that would undermine other initiatives like that. Um, when the, the government brought in a, uh, um, a, a new fund at the start of last year, which was ab about recruitment and uh, retention fund, right? you know, it was a significant amount of money uh, that they put into the sector, which involved, in the end, a number of local authorities either bringing forward some, some, some pay rises or um, uh, giving a, a one-off bonus to, to some of the... Now, only, only a few months after that, they removed the funding for the infection control fund, right? So, so on the same hand, the government is, is giving a pot of money for, to, to improve recruitment and retention. And then, you know, care workers are not stupid. They then see that the, the money has been taken away, so they definitely will not receive sick pay if they have to self-isolate with COVID. They're still going to leave the sector, so there's no long-term plan. So that would be my appeal, is if you're going to bring in additional funding and trying to address these issues, do it in a long-term and sustainable way, not this kind of constant crisis management. Great. Let's um, see whether the audience agrees with you um, and pay, 
pay tops the charts. Um, let's wait for the results. Yeah, unsurprisingly, we have 93% of our, of our polar pollsters um, saying that it's pay and conditions. Um, and a little bit of support on the, on the um, loosening of the migration regime. Um, I suppose I wanted to ask you, Stephen, are we not effectively already in a situation where we're rationing care? So, um, so let me just, uh, I, I will ask you, uh, answer that in a second. So um, I, I tend to avoid focusing on Oxfordshire. Uh, however, I'm going to use Oxfordshire as an example for this. So, so Cabinet in Oxfordshire yesterday approved the budget uh, Council will approve it hopefully in a few weeks' time. Uh, but in that budget proposal, they're proposing to take the maximum council tax. Uh, so they're following the government's recommendation to maximise the income that they can gain. Uh, we're putting all of the money that we can into adult social care. Um, we pay uh, our domiciliary care providers, um, you know, uh, one of the highest hourly rates in the country. Uh, we have some fantastic. Uh, representative bodies uh, for both residential and, and home care, and we work very closely with them. Yet we still have significant numbers of vacancies. Uh, we're doing international recruitment, we're doing all sorts of creative things in Oxfordshire to try and attract people into the sector. So we're putting as much money as we can as a council into the sector. We're working with our providers to retain and to attract staff. We're paying what we hope is, 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 a, is a reasonable rate. We want to pay more, but we can't, yet we still can't attract the numbers of people that we need into the sector. So, so, so uh, it is about money, but it is about more money than we've currently been able to access. So coming back to your specific question, um, is, is rationing of care going on? Um, Difficult question because of my statutory responsibilities as a DAS, but the, the, the harsh reality is yes. Uh, and the reason I can say yes is, is we know that there are over half a million people at the latest survey from ADAS waiting for some form of assessment or having had an assessment, some form of, of package of support, or if having had a package of support, uh, a review to uh, ensure that that package of support is, is appropriate. Now let me be very clear to this audience and anyone who's watching me. There are 152 directors of adult social care and not one of them wants to be in this situation. Not one of them takes any pride, in fact the absolute opposite, in having to make those difficult decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. But interestingly, if you do follow me on Twitter, you'll have seen somebody challenged me um, yesterday uh, about the fact that um, we're not doing enough to uh, ensure people who are having to make contributions towards the, the, the cost of their care are able to retain as much of their benefits as possible. Um, so this is the challenges we're having in the sector. Uh, you know, I've worked, I work for a good council who does value and recognise uh, the sector as doing as much as it possibly can, but it's still not enough. That's really sobering. Mm. Um, things are now going to take an even darker turn because I want to move on from, from staff shortages and talk a bit more about the kind of unlawful, oh, the, the risk of unlawful practice that Nye um, highlighted 
in um, in the report and we and we heard from the um, workers we spoke to but I want to start actually with a question um, that's come in which is about unison's ethical care charter if I, if I might Gavin so the question is unison's ethical care charter commits local authorities to paying home care workers for their travel time many have signed yet unpaid travel time still seems to be the norm and I don't expect you to sort of speak directly to that Gavin but I'm, I'm really interested um, in the extent to which you think um, voluntary um, voluntary interventions like the care charter can drive up standards, or um, just tell us perhaps, tell us perhaps yeah. a bit more about what it is to start with, and then and reflections on that question, please. Yeah, it's an interesting question because there is a tension there. I mean, obviously, we, we are running these campaigns in a in a context where we we haven't got a national government taking the kind of national action that we want. So we we have a choice as a union. We we can just shout from the sidelines and say look you know this this isn't the way we want it to be or we can try and take practical steps at a local level on behalf of our members to try and improve the situation for them and i think the ethical care charter is a really good example of that 46 councils have signed up to that so all the the domiciliary care workers who who are providing services by that are commissioned by those councils, um, including those who are working for independent providers, obviously, um, they are getting the, the, the real living wage, um, the real London living wage in London, obviously, and they are getting paid for their travel time. And that makes a significant difference. In my own local authority in Southwark, um, that has made a big difference to recruitment and retention rates. It's had a really positive effect. Uh, in fact, it, I think it caused some upset with neighbouring local authorities, because of course, a lot of those skilled workers then came to Southwark at the time we introduced that that policy. I'm pleased to say that there's going to be a, another council signing up this week. I can't tell you who it is yet, but you know, watch out for that as well. So it's a live campaign, but is it a replacement for national action and the kind of change that a, a national government with the political will in order to address these issues? Uh, no, it's not a replacement for that because I think you know that's really important. And I, I would say that I don't think people in Stephen's position particularly want to or enjoy having to make those difficult decisions around pay and terms and conditions. Why don't we take that out of the hands of local authority and set a national structure for the pay and terms and conditions of care workers and fund it properly from central government? Then those more nuanced decisions about the type of care that's provided, the way it's provided, the complexities of care in a local area, they're the things that local authorities can concentrate on. Great. It's interesting. Um, we have a question that's come in um, asking about the min minimum wage underpayment. So the question is, do social care workers know when they're underpaid the minimum wage? And if not, why not? And I think I'm going to ask you, Nye, you, you alluded go. to the fact that we have a complicated chart in the report, which um, is our, our thought experiment about the, the risk that domiciliary care workers in particular um, are at in terms of underpayment and minimum wage. Do you want to take us through the chart? I'll and, do my best, yeah. And I'll come um, to you guys for the, to answer the question. Becky, would you mind putting the, the slides back up? Um, but just while we do that, um, in answer to the question, do they, do they know if they're underpaid or not? Um, uh, by and large, no, because uh, they, I mean, t to know if they were, they would have to themselves keep a record of their travel time, keep a record of their contact time, do the sums themselves. And most of them, uh, well, no, they're not, they're not doing that. Um, so we do say in the report, this collection of travel time, I think, should happen so that HMRC can go in there and say, please show us your records. But I also think it should be provided to uh, care workers much more easily so that they can keep tabs on, on what, they're, what they're actually paid. Um, okay, I have to do some rapid flicking through of the charts you already saw, and then we will come to... Okay, so to, to, to really know uh, if a worker's paid 
under the minimum wage or not, you need to know uh, their, their payment rate for their contact time, so the time they're spending on a visit. You need to know uh, how much time they're spending in, in, on those visits, and you need to know your travel time, their travel time. So you need three data points. And so if we had a data set where, where I had all those things, it would be very straightforward to do a calculation. We could have said, these workers, when you, you, need, when you do the maths, are paid below the minimum wage, and these workers aren't. Um, but no, no such uh, data set exists, unfortunately. So, so we just cannot produce a, a calculation that says uh, what we would like to say. And so here, what I'm going to do instead is offer some suggestive evidence, which is uh, where, where we'll look at what are typical rates of pay in the sector for contact time, what is typical rates of pay for um, uh, and, and, and how, how much time are people spending traveling, and then where does that get you in terms of minimum wage? So this chart is showing you the relationship. On the x-axis, we have the hourly rate of pay for contact time. On the y-axis, we have uh, how much time people are spending traveling as a proportion of their contact time. Um, and if you're on the bottom side of that line, I will show you, you're going to be paid above the minimum wage. And if you're on the upside of that line, you're going to be paid uh, below the minimum wage. To make that a bit more concrete, this is the point where if someone was paid £11 an hour for their contact time, which would be a pretty generous, you know, a pretty decent rate of pay for a domiciliary worker, um, but if they were spending 10% of their time travelling, that would erode their pay, um, but they would end up at £10 an hour. So they're still well above, well not well above, but they're still you know, definitely above the minimum wage of £9.50. Hopefully everyone can see that you know, they start at 11 10% of travel has dragged their average rate of pay down. If that same person uh, was, was, paying, uh, was paid £11 an hour for contact time but was spending 25% of their time travelling, that erosion of the average would now bring them below the minimum wage. So they would end up on £8.80 an hour. So the question is, where do care workers fit on this chart? Are they sort of near the red dot or are they near the green dot? Uh, so to start with, uh, we can plot uh, average rates of pay in the sector. So these purple lines show you the, the median rate of pay on the right-hand side, that's £11.07 uh, for domiciliary workers, and at the 25th percentile as well, so that's £10.09. And the assumption I'm making here is that this is the rate of pay for their contact time. Like, like I said, I'm pretty sure that ASH, which is where this data comes from, annual survey of ASH and annual survey of does not really account for travel time. So that's the, that's the pay, but the question is obviously to know where they fall on this chart, what, how much are they travelling, and 20% is the average. So that comes from the uh, Home Care Association, and, and I think it you know, comes from um, quite a large number of, 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 uh, of data points. I don't know which provider, but they, but they say they, they, they take it from a provider. Um, so 20% um, is the average rate of travel. Now that will vary, obviously in a rural area you'll have people spending much more time traveling, in a city it, it might be less, um, but that's the average. And that amounts to you know, 12 minutes per hour spent on a visit. So I think it's quite reasonable to assume, based on these averages that there are a large number of workers on that wrong side of the line, so sitting uh, around here. Now some of them might be just the right side of the line, so the providers might be getting it right, they might have just enough buffer in their pay such that the travel time takes you down to the minimum wage, um, but I think there are probably uh, a decent number where they're not quite getting it right and where that buffer isn't, isn't quite enough. Now, like I said, the problem is we don't know, I can't give you a hard and fast number, I would love to be able to because there are no such data set. Uh, exists, but so clearly we both need to measure this better. Um, but I think on an ongoing basis, providers uh, should be um, asked to record this uh, information. Hope that made sense. Obviously, it now looks hideously complicated, but I think, I think the argument is 
reasonably clear if you sort of go step by step. Thank you very much, Knight. I think it's a masterful explanation. And um, so our, our big takeaway essentially is that there's a very high risk of underpayment or an, an unmeasured um, high risk of underpayment in yes. the domiciliary sector, isn't it? Um, Stephen, I wanted to ask you, I mean, one of the recommendations Knight makes in the report is that um, social care providers should, should collect travel time records as a matter of course. Would that be difficult in practice? If I'm honest, I don't know, uh, not being a, a, a direct provider ourselves. Um, however, um, I don't believe uh, social care providers are doing all sorts of great stuff with electronic record uh, keeping, etc. So, so I, I, I'm sure it's not an unreasonable ask. Um, it is interesting thinking about, um, so having gathered that information, who is then going to um, ensure that the, that the information provides the necessary reassurance that carers are being paid above the minimum wage. Is it the, is it the local authority? Is it the regulator? Um, and if you, um, if you think about the uh, personal assistance, um, who is the regulator in, in that scenario? Uh, in a way, it, it, it always comes back to the local authority as the person who has the statutory responsibility. Um, it, it, it's really interesting. And, and in a way, I am a little bit anxious about how our conversation's going this morning. Not, not because it's not going uh, where it needs to go, but it's still focusing very much on the, um, on the negative experiences of people, on the fact that uh, you know, we're, we're talking about people not necessarily being paid the minimum wage. Uh, and I'm just thinking if, um, if I've learned anything from uh, my work with politicians, um, national and local, is if you constantly keep talking about the negativity, they, they, they increasingly switch off. So, so in a way, we've got to try and find uh, light uh, in this. Uh, I'm not in any way dismissing uh, what Gavin will say, and I agree with, around uh, investment. And in fact, I started with the need for long-term sustainable investment in the sector. Um, but, uh, but we have got to ensure, as well as continuing to lobby in that respect that we bring, as your earlier questions did, what other ways are there of uh, ensuring people feel uh, recognised and rewarded in this? So, you know, yeah. That's a really interesting observation that, um, about how politicians don't respond to the negative. Um, and um, we, we will come back again at the very end um, to the question of value. Um, Gavin, I suppose on the enforcement side, the unions do a huge amount of work yeah. on that and obviously do a huge amount of work um, highlighting unlawful behaviours. Do, do you think there's, do you think there's more that unions could do on this on this issue of travel time? It's it's difficult for for unions in terms of you know we can we can put the case uh, to commissioners, we can put the case to employers, and we can challenge it where we find those examples. But ultimately, um, we find ourselves in a situation where you know responsibility for enforcing national minimum wage is with HMRC. Right? They're, they're, they're the people. Do employers in the care sector, where we're seeing, and let's take a moment to reflect on how outrageous it is, where we're seeing this mass underpayment of the legal minimum, do they fear enforcement from HMRC? No, they don't. That's why it's happening. They think they can get away with it. Um, and that's the problem, is there's not enough resources being put into HMRC into enforcement of the national minimum wage, to the point where, you know, one of the reasons behind the recommendation about the £2 above national minimum wage in the social care sector is because that would, that would just help lift everybody up. Um, you know, when we brought in the national minimum wage in this country, did we ever think that we would have this kind of mass 
underpayment in a particular sector. Um, I don't think we did, you know. On, on, on the point about um, positivity, to some extent I agree with you uh, in terms of the way politicians can react. Um, I think the positivity about this debate has to concentrate on where we can get to if we get the key decisions right, if we start having national solutions to these clearly national problems. I think talking about the, the, the positive future that we can have if the right decisions are taken is the right way to do it. Ultimately, the thing politicians react to the most is the ballot box. Um, and you know, I do think that this issue is going to be absolutely key in the next general election campaign. It will be front and centre, don't be in any doubt about that. And uh, as if the, the major political parties don't have a convincing offer to the country on what they are going to do in social care, I think it will, it will harm their chances at the next general election. That's really interesting. Mm. Um, Stephen, you mentioned personal assistance, and I know mm. that you looked at personal assistance in, in the report, didn't you, Nye? Do you want to just say a little bit about the risks that you identified in terms of unlawful practice there and the policy solutions that uh, you point to? Yes, so yeah, we did a group with personal assistance and um, the finding there was that um, although again they expressed positives about the job and I think those those positives around autonomy, flexibility and the personal connection, you know, they were sort of um, even more amplified because, you know, they're building a long-term um, care relationship with a, with a single person or, or, or maybe a couple of people. So they absolutely were um, positives, but we did discuss uh, some of the risks they face as well. And that mainly seemed to centre around um, uh, insecurity, uh, and that's particularly if they're working for a client who is hospitalised or, or passes away. In most cases, they won't have any kind of you know, income protection, so that their pay will just stop. Um, and informality uh, as well, and obviously the two are related. Um, but although um, Skills for Care statistics say that only around one in 10 um, personal assistants are uh, hired as self-employed, uh, I mean, the, the, all the workers we spoke to, uh, the workers we spoke to, only one was um, employed. And I don't know, I, I, I think a sort of a characterization of this sort of somewhat grey area in the middle is probably uh, closer to the truth and I know that a, I think it was a King's College London study with about 100 personal assistants found that many of them didn't have employment contracts, didn't have sick pay, weren't given holiday pay and obviously those are the uh, necessary entitlements for someone who's, who's taken on as, a, as an employed person. Um, so yeah, I do think more could be done to uh, offer more security uh, to those workers. It's very difficult because we're obviously by definition talking about a vulnerable vulnerable group of people. So although in minimum wage underpayment for domiciliary workers, we're quite happy in the report to be somewhat bullish and say, you know, let's be a bit stronger with our enforcement action here. Uh, I, I, make, I make no such sort of statements in, in the report around the personal assistant workforce where, you know, I'm not, I'm not proposing any kind of heavy-handed enforcement. So I think ultimately it might be that we could do more to um, um, make sure that when those relationships are starting, so, and I think that probably means there is a role for, for local authorities that the uh, people who have the direct payment budgets are aware of the entitlements that come with taking on someone as an employed person so you know not just employed in name but also given those uh, protections around holiday pay and sick pay but it is a very difficult issue and it was definitely sort of the hardest the thing we had to spend most time thinking hard about in the report um so yeah interested to hear what what, what the other mm. panelists thought about that I think what's, what's really striking me about the conversation is in everything we talk about, this issue of, of value and re respect and dignity comes through, doesn't it? And I just, I just want to, in the last few minutes, sort of broaden out the conversation again to think about, you know, what, what can we do to improve the way um, we value carers in, in the workforce? 
Um, and there's a couple of really interesting questions that have come in. Um, there's one um, from Anonymous that says, does society value social care as a profession less because of who cares? Social care jobs are disproportionately done by women. You picked this up in the report, didn't you, Nye? And people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. And, and again, another kind of flip side of that, the question from Luke saying, what can the sector do to encourage more men to work in social care? So, um, Stephen, I don't know whether you have reflections on the gendered nature of the workforce and whether that's partly to blame in terms of how we value, value social care. I, I, I don't... That's never, that's never been brought up in, in conversations with me. Um, what, what, what is clear, though, and it comes back to where I started this discussion, um, I don't think society fully understands um, the role that social care workers undertake. So um, they have a perception. Uh, it's often a, a very narrow perception. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily recognize that the intervention of a social care worker helps keep somebody alive. Uh, they're involved in very intensive, very skilled interventions with lots of people. It, it doesn't, uh, the, the public don't understand the, the role that social care has in helping people live ordinary uh, and at times good lives uh, and how without them uh, individuals would just not uh, survive. Um, I was involved in uh, a piece of work with the BBC a few years back where we, um, we allowed the BBC into Somerset where uh, they saw the, the activity from, uh, through the eyes of people receiving support, so they saw the workers involved in that. Uh, and we got lots and lots of feedback around, I didn't know social care workers were involved in that way. I didn't know that social care workers had that impact uh, upon the lives of people they were working with. I didn't know social care workers were so skilled. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, we've not done enough to push those facets of, of the social care workers' um, identity. Um, you know, so uh, again, it comes back to, you know, everybody understands or has a view of what a nurse or a, a social worker or a doctor does, but we, we've not got a, a clear enough view of just the range of social care workers, and we all have a responsibility uh, to do that. Um, in relation to whether that's um, a gender, has a gender slant or, or an ethnicity slant, um, I, I think we shout about the impact that people have, and we show the people who are having that impact, and that will help. That, that um, issue of, of believing it's a skilled job or, or knowing it's mm. a skilled job was something that came out very strongly in the focus groups, wasn't it? No one felt their job wasn't, wasn't skilled. No, I mean, they, they pointed out they administer medicines. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just it's such, such a, an important and skilled job. Um, you know, even aside from all the you know, skill involved in building those personal relationships, um, uh, you know, and you know, various very specific tasks, you know, lifting. You know, I wouldn't know how to lift a heavy person. So yeah. yes, they were they were able to reel off a large number of, of obviously difficult skill uh, tasks that they're able to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, time is, is very much ticking away at this point in time. So I'm I'm going to come come to one last question to both of you and then wrap up. Um, I'll give it to you first, Gavin. It's a challenging one. Is 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 a is the long term solution um, in terms of tackling all the all the issues we've brought today up today, your pay, job security, recognition. Is it to bring social care into the health service? 
my initial reaction to that would be no, to say no. Uh, I, my personal view is that local authorities are best placed to understand the social care needs in their localities and the democratically accountable nature of local authorities is very helpful in that respect with regard to, to the services provided through social care. Um, the other concern I would have in terms of those arguing that, that it should be brought entirely under the remit of the NHS um, would be that you, you end up kind of medicalising what is essentially a non-medical, uh, there are medical elements of it, but it's essentially a non-medical. You know, when social care is at its best, it can revolutionise people's lives, it can free them to be the kind of people that they want to be and achieve the things that they want to be. Um, and I'm not sure that bringing that into a more medical medicalised institution, which by its nature obviously the NHS is, would would enable um, the service to do that to the best of its ability. That's not to say that many of the features of, of the NHS um, are not things that we should seek to replicate uh, in a social care service. I think probably the best way to do that is to have a national care service which is delivered and put at the door of local government. Stephen, do you agree? Uh, I, I agree with um, practically everything that um, Gavin has said. It, it does need to be local. Um, it should remain the responsibility of, of local authorities. It, it is absolutely because of the role we have in helping people live good lives, uh, whether that's um, helping them uh, remain independent, get jobs, uh, housing, etc. It is about the risk associated with the uh, dominant medicalised model that exists, uh, still exists within, within the NHS. Um, but again, it does need to have um, it does need to have some of that structure that comes with clarity and uniformity around pay, around career pro progression. So, so no, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't be supportive of it moving into the auspices of the NHS. Okay, that's interesting. Um, Nye, I might give you the privilege of making any closing comments. Um, I was, yeah, I was only going to repeat the quote, which I think I showed at some point, which was the care worker saying, you know, these really could be very good jobs. You know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the positives that they highlight, I think, are quite profound. You know, it's not, not many of us go to work and we can uh, make, literally improve someone's life. Um, so I was really struck by that. And I think that therefore gives us quite a strong sort of call to action to sort out those things in their jobs, which, which we can. Um, you know, you can't get rid of all the, um, I don't know, unpleasant or difficult aspects of, of providing care. That's, that's sort of inevitable. Um, but we can resolve pay. We can resolve staffing issues um, uh, and therefore improve workloads and so on. And uh, therefore, we should. Lovely positive note to end on. Thank you. Um, well, it just remains for me to say um, thank you to everybody for this amazing event today. I've learned tons. It's been, it's been a real privilege. Um, thank you to the audience. I'm apologies for not getting through the, the, the plethora of questions that you posed. There were so many good ones, so many rich ones, but I hope we touched on, on most of the kind of key points. Thank you, Gavin. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Nye. And um, definitely join us again at another Resolution Foundation event soon. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.